You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. Matthew 16, 13 to 23. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son Hello? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. And from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised raised the third day. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Get behind me, Satan. That must have that must have stung a bit. A lot, really. But seriously, have you ever wondered how Peter if you read that whole conversation, a lot of the time we break it up, right? But if you read the whole thing through In the span of one conversation with Jesus, Peter goes from speaking the words and revelation of God the Father to speaking the words of Satan. That's not complicated. It's because Peter believes that Jesus is the Messiah and that he will be victorious in redeeming them. He believes that, but he cannot understand or grasp, much less believe, how Jesus dying is going to accomplish it. Right in the first half of the conversation, Jesus asks him, who do you say I am? And he answers correctly in faith. He says, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus celebrates his answer and reveals to him that it was only through the revelation of God the Father himself that he could confess that truth. And Jesus goes further. He tells him more. He says that, that on that truth, on that rock, as Peter's name represents, he will build his church. Heaven and earth will be renewed. They're given the keys to the kingdom. And not only that, but the power of hell, the gates of Hades will not be able to withstand it. In other words, Jesus is saying to him, yes, I am the Messiah and I will win. I will proclaim victory over the power of of hell, over the power of sin and death, over the enemies of God. And you, Peter, along with those who believe, will walk and live in that victory as the church. That's what's happening right there. And I can only guess that, that Peter and the other disciples at this point, they, they, they'd be getting pumped up, right? They'd be getting excited at this proclamation that's happening right now. You know, they're saying like, whoa, Peter just spoke a revelation from God. 
right? And, and Jesus just confirmed that he's going to win, that, that we're going to do this, that we're, that we're going to break down the gates of hell and slaughter the enemy forever. This, this is happening. They're, they're getting pumped up, and my guess is that, that Thomas, he probably threw on some hardcore music, maybe an under oath track or something, or Striper, like, to hell with devil, right? Just to set the mood, right? Get, get their blood pumping and their heart rate up and, and their mad focus on, like a football team that's about to destroy their opponent, right? They're bumping chests, they're, they're giving high fives, they're pumping their fists, throwing them in the air, splashing their faces with water, you know, like tightening their sandal straps. They're ready to follow Jesus, right? Bring down the forces of darkness and evil. They're getting excited about this. And for, and, and, and for good reason, right? This is good news. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, he's come and he's going to win. He's going to crush Satan and evil and sin and, and the power of death. And, 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 and those who follow Jesus will get to share in his victory and share in the spoils. But then, to the disciples' dismay and surprise, most of all, it seems to Peter, Jesus switches gears. And he starts telling them about how he's not actually going to win. Right? He starts telling them that the chief priests and the Pharisees and, and the scribes are going to beat him up and then kill him. And Thomas, by that point, he's, he's turning down the ghetto blaster, right? Joining with the other disciples, staring at Jesus. They were just dumbfounded, right? In silence and, and confusion. Like, Rabbi, like, I thought you just said like, you were going to win, but now like, you're saying you're going to lose? Like, I don't get it. And so Peter, on behalf of everyone there, I assume, which is Peter's M.O., he decides to take Jesus aside before he brings down the mood any further in order to rebuke him. Yes, that's right. Peter decides to rebuke the one he just confirmed as being the Son of God. (laughs) Peter cracks me up. Anyways, this is what he says. Oh, no, Lord. This will never happen to you. He's saying, like he's smarter than Jesus, we often think that we are, right? He's saying, no, Jesus, like you said earlier, we're going to win, not lose. We won't let you die. We won't let you lose. This is Peter's thinking. And of course, Jesus responds to that by saying, get behind me, Satan. You're in my way. You're not thinking about God's concerns. You're thinking about human concerns. So Peter, in his humanity, in his mortality, couldn't see the bigger picture at play. He couldn't see what needed to be done. He couldn't see that the cross was the way to victory, that to break the power of death over us and to destroy the one who held the power over death, death had to be defeated. Death had to be overcome. To a human, death is defeat. Death death seems final. But to God, death isn't final. And in this case, it's actually the path to triumph. Hebrews 12, 14 explains it for us when it says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus also shared the same things in the same way. He became like us, right, to take our place. He did this to destroy the one who holds the power over death, the devil, by dying. And I poked fun at Peter earlier, but the truth is we'd we'd probably do the same thing that Peter did. 
Because that's how it usually is with us, right? We often find ourselves in situations or, or, or facing challenges where we're like, God, what are you doing? This makes no sense. Like the story of Joseph is an amazing example of that. God, right? God came to Joseph in a dream, you know, told him he would have a, an amazing life, and his brothers got jealous and sold him into, into slavery in Egypt, uh, where he was falsely accused of trying to sexually assault his master's wife. So he was thrown in jail, which is more like a pit, and he spent years there. Can you imagine? God tells him that he's got amazing and victorious and glorious plans for him, and then instead all of this garbage happens. How many of us would be done with God at that point? Or we'd be like Peter saying, no, Lord, that's not the way it's supposed to happen. But yeah, what happens in, in, in Joseph's life? He's summoned by the Pharaoh to in, interpret this dream and ends up becoming second in command in all of Egypt, a position he then uses to further save his people, to save God's people. And on that note, due to a drought in Israel, his, his brothers show up asking for aid for their country. And after a while, they recognize Joseph. And they repent. And this is what Joseph says to them. What you meant for evil, God intended for good. What you meant for evil, God intended for salvation. And that story, that truth, points us prophetically and specifically to the cross. What looks like and was meant for evil Right, the priests and, and, and the Romans killing an innocent man. What looks like evil, God intended for good. So when Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to be beaten and killed, you know, it's true, that doesn't sound like winning. When we see the Son of God dead on the cross, it doesn't look like winning. As Jesus was lifted up on the cross, as, as the nails tore into his flesh, as he struggled to breathe, as he called out in agony, as he was mocked and stripped naked and shamed and robbed of the only belongings he owned, as he cried out to God, why have you forsaken me? That looks and sounds a lot like defeat. Like it was Satan in hell, not God in his kingdom, that were winning the day. And Satan probably thought he was winning. And no wonder all the disciples, except John, had, had scattered and deserted Jesus. Peter even betrayed Jesus three times. Why? Because everyone felt the pangs and sorrow of that defeat. Jesus' body was broken and dead. Everything seemed lost and hopeless. But here's the thing. When Jesus cries out, and breathes his last. That's not a cry of hopelessness. That's not a cry of defeat. It's a cry of victory. It's a cry of suffering, yes, absolutely. He was suffering. He was taking on our sorrows. And our shame and our, and our guilt and our pain. And our enmity with God. The, the wrath of God. The wages of our sin. So he was suffering in our place. Yes, but this was also a, a battle cry that proclaimed, it is finished. As he willingly gave up his spirit and breathed his last, he won. 
His death was our victory. On the day of Pentecost, Peter reveals to us in his sermon that he finally gets it. And he proclaims in Acts 2, 22 to 24, he says, Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene was a man whose credentials God proved to you through miracles, wonders, and signs which God performed through him among you. There's a spiritual battle going on. Jesus was proving those things and his authority over it. And then he says, you yourself know this. You've seen it. In accordance with God's established plan and foreknowledge, he was betrayed. You, with the help of wicked men, had Jesus killed by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him up. God freed him from death's dreadful grip, since it was impossible for death to hang on to him. It was impossible for death to hang on to him. About this, Daryl Johnson again writes, It was a real death. Jesus did die. And Peter's point is this. It was impossible for death to hold the dead Jesus because in the death of Jesus, death lost its grip. At the moment Jesus died, death already lost its finality. Death could no longer hold on even to the dead Jesus. And as Jesus proclaimed in John 12, 31 about his death, now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. The authority and power of Satan over this world, the power of hell over this present darkness, the power of sin and death, these needed to be disarmed and dethroned for us to truly be saved. They needed to be disarmed and dethroned in order for the kingdom of God to restore its reign on earth and in us. And it was accomplished at the cross. The enemy thought they'd won, but that's the irony in trying to kill God. They lost. That's what Paul means when he writes in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8, when he says, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And John Stott, he sums all of this up nicely. I'm going to read, read it for you here. And he says, Look at him there. Spread eagle and skewered on his cross, robbed of all freedom of movement, strung up with nails or ropes or both, pinned there and powerless, it appears to be total defeat. If there is victory, it is the victory of pride, prejudice, jealousy, hatred, cowardice, and brutality. Yet the Christian claim is that the reality is the opposite of the appearance. What looks like, and indeed was, the defeat of goodness by evil is also, and more certainly, the defeat of evil by goodness. Overcome there, he was himself overcoming. Crushed by the ruthless power of Rome, he was himself crushing the serpent's head. The victim was the victor, and the cross is still the throne from which he rules the world. And if we quickly fast forward to Revelation, to the day of the Lord, what do we see? We're not going to read it right now. We don't have time for that. Read it yourselves. But if we did read it, what we'd see is we'd see the heavenly creatures and authorities praising the Lamb who was slain. In other words, rejoicing at the victory of the cross. And then we see the Lamb of God clothed in a robe, 
stained with his blood that was shed at the cross, riding on a white horse that symbolizes his victory. And we see him defeat the serpent, Satan, and then restore heaven and earth, making all things new. And that victory that's being fully claimed there in Revelation is the one that's already won at the cross. That's why he's stained in his blood that was shed. He's claiming that victory in full. In other words, Jesus has already won, and now nothing and no one can stand against him. Because of his sacrifice, he has given, he's been given authority over all things, whether in heaven and earth. He is Lord. But as we wait for that day when Jesus claims his victory in full, we have to ask and remind ourselves, you know, what does all this mean for us today? What does all, what does all this mean for us now? And for that, I have three quick points, and they're all summed up in this passage. So I'm going to start with this passage and then give three points of what it means for us today. First Corinthians 15, 54 to 57. It says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable. Always excel in the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So three quick points on that. First one, as the church, as followers of Christ, we walk and live in victory. Right? As the church, as followers of Christ, we walk and live in victory. Because of the cross, we're no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. We're no longer under the dominion of the prince of the power of the air. We no longer have to bow down or submit to the powers of authorities of this world or chase the desires of our flesh because of the cross, as it says in 1 Corinthians. We have the ability to be steadfast and immovable in our faith as citizens of the kingdom of God. Or as it says in Ephesians, we can put on the full armor of God, right? which is the victory of Christ. The full armor of God, all those things listed there, is the victory of Christ, what Jesus won for us at the cross. And in doing so, we can resist the schemes and accusations and lies and temptations of this world and of Satan. For example, when, when we hear in our head maybe the, the, the lie that God doesn't love us, we can either give in to that, right? Or we can pray through that and we can speak his word and his promise against it, saying, no, God showed his love for us by sending his son to die and claim victory over us. Or when we're, we're tempted to follow the desires of the flesh, maybe we can proclaim, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And yes, we, we still might fall sometimes, but in Christ we don't have to. We walk in victory. And if we do fall by his grace, we can get back up. Through Jesus, through the victory of the cross, we can stand firm against evil. Evil cannot defeat us. Even in times of suffering or persecution or temptation, we can persevere and we can remain steadfast because we walk in victory. That's the first point. And it leads us to the second point is that we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear anymore. As the, the worship song says, no fear in life, no fear in death. Hebrews 12, 14 to 15. We, we read verse 14, but it continues, right? So 
It says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus also shared the same things in the same way. He did this to destroy the one who holds the power over death, the devil, by dying. He set free those who were held in slavery their entire lives by their fear of death. So we don't have to fear death anymore. We're freed from that. Because Jesus has won. We have the promise of resurrection life. Death is no longer final because Jesus overcame it. Which means we can now claim, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? We can laugh at the face of death. We don't have to fear it. But even in life now, we have nothing and no one to fear. Because in Christ, nothing in this life or the next can separate us from the love of God. Romans 8, 35 to 39 says, Who will separate us from Christ's love? Who will be separated by trouble or distress or harassment or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, we are being put to death all day long for your sake. We are treated like sheep for slaughter. But in all these things, we win a sweeping victory through the one who loved us. I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Not death or life, not angels or rulers, not present things or future things, not powers or height or depth or any other thing that is created. We have nothing to fear in life or death. Jesus won. Nothing can separate us from that. And so since we walk in victory and we have nothing to fear, that leads us to the third point which is that we're called to proclaim the victory of the cross. As the church are the evidence and the proclaimers of Jesus' victory until he comes again. Jesus said that he'll build his church. And then what? That the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we've been given the keys to the kingdom. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And for some reason... People often, or usually even, read that like we're defending ourselves against hell. That's the armor of God passage. This means something different. That's not what it means. It means the opposite. To break down someone's gates is an offensive attack, right? It's to break down and break into the fortress of your enemy. And this is the call for the church to march into the places of darkness and bring the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 2, 14-15 says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Right? We walk in victory. And then through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And again in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, the second half of that verse, which you read earlier already, highlights that as well, right? The passage is talking about Christ's victory over death, but it ends with this command. Always excel in the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So we're called as the church to proclaim the victory of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. And we know that because Jesus has already won, that we don't proclaim it in vain. That we're not doing this in vain. 
we know that we will win. And this is also what we celebrate and remember at communion. We have communion every week, and this is what we're celebrating and remembering. As it says in the Word, when we partake, we proclaim his death until he comes. We proclaim his death until he comes. What does that, what does that mean? It means that we proclaim his victory until we see it in full. We proclaim his victory until we see it in full. So let us now, as the church, respond to the word this morning and do that together. Let us take communion together and proclaim Christ's victory until we see it in full. Um, First of all, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I know it's it's a challenging subject to talk about, Lord God, it's, it's a reality. And the reality is that, that you won the battle over sin. You won the battle over death. Lord, you won the victory over Satan. You won the victory over hell so that we no longer have to walk as, as slaves to the course of this world, Lord God. We, we no longer have to be afraid. Lord God, but we can walk in victory, Jesus, because you won that victory at the cross. So Lord, we thank you for that. We glorify you for that. And I pray that, that the reality of, of what you've accomplished would just come alive in our hearts. Lord, that you would write that in our hearts and in our minds. And that as we come before you and, and remember that and acknowledge that as we take communion, Lord, that you would be glorified and lifted up that we, we would be a church that doesn't hesitate to proclaim your victory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.